Welcome to First Church Live. So glad you guys are joining us for worship here today. Before we get started, if you would, just allow me to take a moment. I'd like to pray for our country. If you've been watching the news over the past few weeks like I've been, past few days and past week like I have, your heart is probably broken like mine is. And I know God's heart is broken as well. Our mission here at First Church is to love Jesus and to love like Jesus. And part of loving like Jesus is capturing his heart. And we know, we teach here, that in Jesus' heart, there is no room for racism, there's no room for hate, there's no room for prejudice. And so we as the church want to lead the way in showing the world what it looks like to love all people, regardless of their racial background, their social background, their economic background, it doesn't matter. Everyone is created in God's image. Everyone is his child. And so we want to lead the way in showing what it means to love the world as God has loved us. So I just pray for our church, and I pray for churches around the country as well, that we can be a great example of that. But I also want to pray for peace in our nation as well, because I know there's a lot of tension right now. We just pray for peace in this moment and for unity in this moment, that we can rally around God and that he can work in our midst. So if you would, bow with me in prayer. Father, our hearts are heavy right now from what we see on the news and the pain and suffering that is going on. And Father, we just lift this entire situation into your hands. Father, we, we know that you love all people, everyone, everywhere. And I was taught from a young kid in children's church, red, yellow, black, and white, everyone is precious in your sight. And we just pray that as the church, we can lead the way in showing people what it means to love everyone as you have loved us. Father, I also pray for peace in our nation right now as there's so much tension, so much anxiety, and so much pain. Father, I just pray for peace and unity among all people. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for giving me that moment. Well, we are just one week away from our relaunch Sunday, and so changing gears, I want to talk about that real fast. We are excited because next week we are going to have in-person services here at our North Garnett campus, and we cannot wait. So you are invited to come out next Sunday at 9.30 or 11 o'clock for live services in person here at North Garnett. Now, if you still don't feel comfortable coming to in-person service, that's fine. We're going to stream our services online just like we have have been at the same times, so you can still worship from home or wherever you are, but we want to invite you to be here, and if you do come next weekend to North Garnett, we want you to wear your first church gear. We're in this curveball series right now, and if you go to a ball game, you wear your team colors, right? So as we gather back together next Sunday, we want everybody wearing their first church shirts and gear and whatever you have as we celebrate our family coming back together again on June 7th. If you don't have a first church shirt, we're going to have some here for you. They're not new shirts or leftovers, but we're going to pass 
them out. We want everybody wearing their first church gear as we celebrate what God is doing in our church family right now. And as part of getting prepared for next Sunday, we're having a special trial run Sunday today. So we invited our church members to RSVP if they wanted to be a part of the service. And we have a couple hundred people right now actually in the building with us today. And that is awesome. And so if you guys who are here, if you would, would you put your hands together? Welcome in our online audience. So good to have you guys, so glad to have you guys watching online as well, and let's continue on our Curveball series. We're in this series right now because curveballs don't just happen in baseball, they also happen in life. And we've been looking at different people throughout the Bible who experienced some curveball situation and how they responded to it and how God continued to work in their lives. And as I was thinking about our curveball series and this baseball theme this past week, I thought about the first time that I took Alex and Addie, my kids, to a professional baseball game. We actually went to go watch the Cincinnati Reds play ball because at that time we lived about an hour and 20 minutes away from Cincinnati. And my in-laws, Allison's mom and dad, Nana and Papa, as we we call them. They actually paid for us to go. So it was great. It was free, but it was also fun. We had a great time, and Alex loved it. He was about three years old, so he was old enough to really understand what was going on, to start to understand what was going on. And as we looked around during the game, we noticed that a whole lot of people had these, these Reds helmets. And so Alex immediately wanted one. And I was just like, hey, buddy, uh, I know you want one, but I bet you they're really expensive because the only way you can get them is if you buy nachos. So I went to go check because they serve nachos in these helmets. So I went to go check and see how much these nachos in a helmet were. They were $18 for one of these things of nachos. And I'm like, I am not paying 18 bucks for chips and cheese in a 25-cent helmet. I'm not going to do that. I'm too tight for that. So I went to Alex. I was like, hey, buddy, I know you really want one of these helmets, but uh, not today. They're too expensive. And he looked at me, and he goes, well, I'll just ask Nan and Papa. They'll buy it for me. And you know what? They probably would have, but I was like, no, that's still too much money. We had a fun time anyway, even though I didn't go buy one of these. Here's a picture of our family at the Reds game with one of the mascots. If you can tell, Alex is about three there, and Addie is just a baby. And um, Allison and me look a lot, well, she looks the same. I look a lot younger. My hair has gotten a lot grayer since then. And I'm not sure if that's kids or if that's working at First Church. I'm really not sure. But either way, my hair has gotten a lot grayer, and that's okay. So we had a fun day. The game was done. Everybody was leaving, and Allison needed to change Addie's diaper before we left. And so she went to the bathroom, and she was able to do that. And while she was changing the diaper, I was standing there with my in-laws and Alex, and I thought, you know... I wonder if somebody left one of these helmets behind. You know, I wonder if somebody bought the nachos, just left the helmet behind. So the stands were empty, and I started walking through the stands. And sure enough, two or three people had left these behind. So I found one that looked like it was all right, took the paper and the nachos out, went to the bathroom, washed it out with soap and water, and I came and I brought it to Alex. And I handed it to him, and he was just so excited. He was thrilled, and he looked at me with that look like, man, I just love you to death, Dad. It was an awesome moment. It really was. And then my mother-in-law, her name's Bonnie. Bonnie looked at Alex and goes, buddy, what do you think about that dad of yours? And Alex said something I never heard him say before, but it hit me and it hit me hard. Alex goes, he's my hero. And I remember when he said that, you might be thinking, oh, that was kind of an aw moment. And maybe it should have been, but it wasn't for me. Instead, I thought, buddy, if I'm your hero, you need a better hero. Because I love you, and I'm going to support you, and I'm always going to be there for you. But I'm going to let you down. 
because I'm imperfect. If I'm your hero, you need a better hero. It's funny how our heroes change over time. You probably had a childhood hero, and I asked some of our staff this week if they had a childhood hero, and so they were sending me an emails, and I thought, you know, better than just reading their responses, let me let them tell you who their childhood heroes were. So take a look at this video. Who was your childhood hero as a kid? My childhood hero was my dad. My favorite childhood hero is the Incredible Hulk. Because he's intelligent, he's incredible, and he breaks everything. My childhood hero was Thomas the Train. My childhood hero is George Brett. My childhood hero was Wonder Woman. So my childhood heroes were Nadia Comaneci and Dorothy Hamill. Obviously, that was before the WNBA existed. Childhood hero was Mr. T, I pity a fool. My childhood hero was Batman. My childhood hero was Mary Lou Retton. My childhood hero was, um, I'm still a child, so I don't really know. My childhood hero was Optimus Prime. Autobots, roll out. <laughs> you guys are making me laugh. My childhood hero was Superman. My childhood hero was Michael Jordan. My childhood hero was Princess Leia. My childhood hero was, I didn't look up to anybody. But if I had to say one, probably I looked up to my sisters and my mom. My childhood hero is Weird Al Yankovic. Still is. That says a whole lot about our staff, doesn't it? In Judges chapter 6 in the Old Testament, God's people were in desperate need of a hero. And here's why. God's people were finally living in the promised land. You know, Moses had brought them out of the promised land. Of course, God led them. And then Joshua was leading the people as well. But both of them have passed away. And now the Israelites, they spend some time in the promised land. This land flowing with milk and honey, this paradise. And as they lived it up, they started to forget about God. And as they forgot about God, they lived recklessly and selfishly. Judges chapter 21 describes how the people lived during this period of time. And look at what it says. It says, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In other words, they stopped seeing God's vision for life. They ignored what he wanted them to do. And instead, they just did whatever seemed right in their eyes own eyes. They followed their own selfish passions, their own selfish desires. Whatever they thought felt good in the moment, that's what they did. And because of that, they lived recklessly and selfishly. And so God said, okay, if that's the way that you want to live, I'll turn you over to the consequences of that lifestyle because there are always consequences to living that way. And so basically what happened was that God allowed for the enemy of God's people, the Midianites, to come in, this foreign power to come in and overrun the land. And basically God's people are now living on the run. They're hiding out. They're afraid. They're scared. In fact, the Bible says that God's people, they were living in holes in the ground and caves because they were living in fear. And in this moment, they should have turned to God and said, God, we're sorry and repented, and they should have turned everything over to him, but instead, they continued to run. They continued to hide, not just from their enemies, but also from God. And here's a life lesson that I learned a long time ago, and it, 
I learned it the hard way. It took me a long time to get it, but it's this. Hiding and healing don't go together. God can't heal what we hide. And even if we try to hide, it isn't really living. In fact, hiding isn't living. Running isn't living. It's just a partial life. It's an incomplete life. It's a life that will never satisfy us, that will never keep us content. And God knows that. And he knew that for the people during the days of the judges. And so God decides to intervene because they've settled for a life that's much less than what he intended them to live. And so God intervenes, and what he does is he appears to this man named Gideon. You know, the guy who prints all the Bibles. No, not really. Somebody else named Gideon in the Old Testament. And he taps Gideon on the shoulder, and he says, Hey, listen, Gideon, I want you to deliver my people. I want you to be the leader of my people that will set them free from this Midian oppression and we would think that Gideon would be excited that Gideon would be excited that God wanted to rescue his people but also that Gideon would be excited that God was going to use somebody like him but he wasn't look at how Gideon responds here but Lord now by the way anytime that God asks you to do something and your immediate response is but but Lord but God you're in trouble Because what Gideon here is basically saying is, God, I know what you want me to do. I know what's right. I know what's best. But God, I would rather do what I want to do. Anytime that we look at God and we say, God, I know what's best. I know what's right. But I would rather do this. We're in trouble. And Gideon says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. See, Gideon had come to believe something about himself that wasn't true. Gideon is looking at God and saying, God, I'm from the weakest family in all of Israel, and I'm the lowest in my family. You've got the wrong guy, God. There's got to be somebody else. You really, really don't want to use somebody like me. And if you're reading the story of Gideon for the first time, you might agree with him. Because Gideon really doesn't look very heroic. You know what Gideon is doing when the angel of the Lord first appears to him and says, hey, I want to use you to deliver my people? You know what Gideon's doing? Look what Judges says in 6.11. Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, this is what a wine press looks like in the ancient world. If you notice, it's underground. So what is Gideon doing? He is trying to thresh wheat or sort out grain underground. And there's a problem here because in order to sort out grain like Gideon was trying to do, you needed something. You needed wind. Gideon has gone underground to thresh out this wheat, and it's not working. But why is he underground? Why is he making this so complicated and difficult? Because Gideon is hiding himself. Remember what I said? God's people are living in holes in the ground and in caves. Well, Gideon is underground. He's hiding out from the Midianites. He's scared. He's afraid. He's a coward. He doesn't look very heroic in this moment, and yet God appears to Gideon, and look at what the angel of the Lord says to him. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, Gideon doesn't look like a mighty warrior here. This title, this description was reserved for those who would lead an army in battle. That doesn't describe a guy hiding out in a wine press underground, does it? Why does God refer to Gideon as a mighty warrior? Well, it's simple. Because throughout Scripture, 
God often refers to people not as they currently are, but who he knows they can become. And I want to let you guys know today, I don't know what situation you are in life. I don't know what's going on right now. I don't know who you see when you look in the mirror right now. But I'll tell you one thing. When God looks at you, he doesn't just see who you are right now. He sees who you can become. God always sees who you can become if you trust and if you follow him. And so that's why God says to Gideon, if we jump on to Judges 6.16, the Lord answered him, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. You see, Gideon becoming this mighty warrior depended on God's presence in his life. God says, you invite me to lead you. You invite me to be with you. And you will become this mighty warrior that I know you can be. And so what does Gideon do? He decides to hear God out. He's scared, he's afraid, he's terrified, he's nervous, he's anxious, but he decides to hear God out. And he says, okay, God, what do you have in store for me? What's your plan? Now, why does Gideon decide to hear God out if he's so scared and so terrified and so afraid? Because even Gideon knows No one was created to spend their life in caves and in holes in the ground. And the same is true for us as well. So many of us are settling for a life that's much less than what God intended us to live. And none of us were created to spend our lives trapped by addiction. None of us were created to spend our lives in an abusive relationship or in a codependent, unhealthy relationship. None of us were created to stumble through life empty, to stumble through life without purpose. None of us were created to live permanently enslaved to the messes that we've created or our mistakes. No, we were created for so much more. None of us were created to live in holes in the ground or in caves. And God knows running isn't living. Hiding isn't living. And Gideon starts to understand this. Because God says, hey, if you stop running from me, you stop hiding from me, I'll be with you. And better yet, you get to be with me. And honestly, that's the longing of all of our hearts. That's what we all want deep down within our soul, deep down in our hearts. That's what we all want. Deep within the soul of every human being, every one of us is a longing for the restored presence of God. And until we live in a restored relationship with him, we will exist, but we will never really fully, completely live. And so God says, if you come back to me, if you let me lead you, I'll be with you and we will do life together. Because here's the thing, God is the ultimate destination of our hearts. You can chase after a lot of different things in life trying to find happiness, but I guarantee you none of that stuff will bring you happiness if you don't have God at the center of your life. And right now, I don't know what you're chasing after. I don't know if you're chasing after a career or if you're chasing after some relationship thing and that some person will complete you. I don't know if you're chasing after a social group to be a part of or some material possession, some stuff that's out there. I don't know if you're chasing after money or what. I don't know what you're chasing after to try to find happiness, but I'll let you know right now. With the highest degree of certainty, those things will not fulfill the deepest longing of your heart. Because God is our life's destination. And until he becomes the destination of your life, your life will always be out of balance. 
I've had the privilege a couple different times to coach my son Alex in sports, whether it be soccer or basketball. And anytime I coach one of my son's teams, before practice or before games, we always stretch. Because I don't want any these kids, even though they're kids, to get hurt. So we always stretch. And one stretch we do is we stretch our quads. So basically what I have them do is I have them pull back one leg, and they got to bend it all the way back so they can feel it burn, you know, right there in their quad area. And they want to ask them to hold it for a certain amount of time. Now here's the thing. I can stand here on one leg for a while because I've practiced this, I've played sports, and I've done this, and I'm an adult. Little kids, they can't keep their balance like this. Now, I can't do this forever. Let's see how long I can do it. No, I'm kidding. But uh, little kids, they can only hold this for a few seconds. And so immediately, they start to do what? They start to wiggle and hop around and lose their balance. And eventually, what they will do is they will reach out for someone standing near them. They'll reach out to one of their teammates and when they do, they reach out for a teammate that's just as wobbly as they are. And so guess what? They all come tumbling down together. That's what happens. And you know, in life, the same is true for us. When life gets out of whack, when life is unbalanced because of our sin, because of what we've done, if we reach out for the wrong things to try to balance us, it may balance us for a few seconds, for a moment, but eventually we're going to come crashing down. God is our source of strength. God is our source of, God is our foundation. He is what will hold us firm. And if we reach out for anything or anyone besides him, eventually our lives will come crashing down. Some people, when their life gets out of whack, they reach out for destructive stuff, thinking, hey, this desire, this pleasure, it will balance me out. And maybe it brings them a little bit of happiness for a moment, but eventually their lives come crashing down. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. It says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You can reach out for all these desires and passions that this world offers you, this destructive stuff, and maybe for a while it'll make you happy. But eventually it's going to ruin your life. Now, sometimes we reach out for good stuff, stuff that God intended for our good. We reach out for good stuff. But I love this quote by one of my favorite preachers, John Weiss. If you make a good thing an ultimate thing, it will become a destructive thing. If you put a good thing in the place that only God deserves, it will become a destructive thing. Let me give you an example of that. I love my wife, Allison, to death. I would do anything for her. I would die for her. I love her to death. But I don't ask Allison to be God for me. I don't, ask, I don't ask Allison to be my savior because I know she can't do that. And that's unfair of me to even ask that of her. I don't ask her to do for me what only God can do for me. And she doesn't ask that of me either. See, the reason why our relationship, our marriage is what it is today is because both of us have centered our lives on God. And he is at the center of our family. I don't ask her to do for me what only God can do for me. And if I started to do that, she then starts to take the place of God and a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. So if we reach out for the wrong stuff to keep us balanced in life, we're just going to come crashing down. God has to be the ultimate destination of our hearts. And so Gideon says in our passage, okay, God, I'm going to hear you out. I'm going to reach out for you. What is it you want me to do? And God says, okay, the first thing I want you to do is there's a bunch of idols in your hometown, and I want you to go through and I want you to knock down all these altars because if, if I'm going to restore Israel, you've got to worship me and worship me alone. And so Gideon says, okay, he does it, but here's the thing. Gideon goes and tears down these altars at night. 
when everybody's asleep. You know why? Because he's still scared. He technically does what God wants him to do, but he does it when no one he hopes no one will notice because he's still scared, he's still afraid, he's still not fully trusting God. On another occasion, God says, okay, I want you to be the deliverer of my people. And Gideon says, God, I need some proof. And he puts God to a test, which is always a bad thing. But he puts God to a test, and he says, okay, God, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to put out a fleece in the middle of the night, and when I wake up the next morning, I want for that fleece to be uh, soaked with water and everything around it to be dry. And God says, okay. And God does that. The next morning, it happens just as Gideon asked. And Gideon says, God, I need a little bit more proof. Uh, I want for everything else around it to be dry and the fleece be wet. Do the opposite of what I just asked. And so God does that too. God does exactly what Gideon asked him to do with this fleece. And yet still Gideon doubts God. And this is not a good thing. God plainly tells us in his word not to put him to the test. But God humors Gideon. You know why? Because God is eternally patient with us. And I'm so glad he's been eternally patient with me. So finally the day comes when Gideon has to go and lead the Israelite army. And God says, I want you to gather together all the fighting men in Israel to go take on the Midianites. So Gideon gathers together. He amasses an army of 32,000 fighting men in Israel. Now 32,000 seems like a whole lot. But on the other side of the battlefield, <laughs> there are 135,000 members of the Midianite army, fighting soldiers who are well-trained, by the way. The odds are four to one right now. And Gideon and God, they have a conversation about this, and God says, Gideon, we've got a numbers problem. And Gideon's like, you're telling me four to one odds? Yeah, we, you're telling me we've got a numbers problem. God, what are we going to do about it? And God says, well, I want you to go to your men and say, if you're afraid to fight, you can go back home to your family. Get an honorable discharge. Go home. And he's like, no, 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 God, we need more people, not less people. And God's like, nope, that's my plan. That's what I want you to do. So Gideon goes and he tells his fighting men, if you're afraid to fight, go home. 22,000 men get up and go home. Gideon is now left with 10,000 men to fight against the Midianites, an army again of 135,000. You know, you know what the odds are now? 13 to 1. And at this point, God comes back to Gideon. He says, Gideon, we've got a numbers problem. And if I was Gideon, at this point, I'd be like, no, God, I'm good. Really, I'm good. Thanks. I appreciate the advice and help, but I'm good. And God says, no, we still have a numbers problem. I want you to take the people, the fighting men, down to a body of water and I want you to watch them drink. And if they drink one way, send them home. If they drink another way, keep them to fight. 300 men drink the way that God wanted them to. 300 men are left to fight. An army of 135,000. The odds are now 450 to 1. And Gideon is scared to death. And God comes to Gideon and says, I like those odds. I can work with that. We can go to war now. Gideon's terrified, and God has to continue to encourage and support Gideon during this time. But eventually they go to war. And what Gideon is going to learn in this moment is that what's unthinkable to you becomes unstoppable when God is with you. 
What's unthinkable and imaginable to you becomes unstoppable when God is with you. So here's what happens. Gideon takes these 300 men into battle, and they go at night, and God says, this is what I want you to bring, trumpets and some jars and some torches. And Gideon's like, what? Yeah, that's what I want you to bring. I want everybody to bring those items with them, and I want you to surround the Midianite camp. And when I give you the cue, I want you to break these jars and blow your trumpets. And Gideon's like, okay, then what? No, that's what I want you to do. Just go do that. And so that's what happens. And look at what the Bible says. Judges 7.22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the Midianite camp to turn on each other with their swords. So the people do what God told them to do. The soldiers do what God told them to do. And God gives them the victory. The Lord causes the Midianites to turn their swords on one another. And the people of God don't even have to fight. God gives them the victory. And then we get this little notation in Judges chapter 8. It says, Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. They enjoyed peace, stability, security, because they leaned on God and did what he asked them to do. Now, here's the thing. Why did God ask Gideon to do this? Why did God ask the people to do this? Why did God make the situation look so impossible in order to deliver his people? Why did God use a man to lead the people who was scared and terrified and basically a coward? Why did God continue to decrease the number of soldiers before he went to fight the Midianites? Why did God use this weak and rebellious people to carry out his plan? Well, the answer is simple. It's because when you read this story, you aren't amazed at Gideon. You're amazed at God. See, Gideon isn't the hero of this story. God is. God is the one who delivers the people. God is the one who works both behind the scenes and up front. God is the one who has a plan. Gideon isn't the hero that Israel needed God is. And in the same way today, he's the hero that we need. Even when we don't understand what he's asking us to do, we need to listen to him. See, our job is to do the next right thing that God is asking us to do. When God came to Gideon and said, hey, I want you to tell, the, tell your fighting men they can go home if they're scared, Gideon's probably like, but God, that doesn't make any sense for down the road. God says, don't worry about the consequences. I'll take care of that. Don't worry about down the road. You just do the next right thing that I'm asking you to do in the moment. So Gideon does that. And then God says, hey, you still got too many men. I want you to whittle the number down even more. And Gideon's probably like, God, this doesn't make any sense. We need more people to go fight down the road. God's like, don't worry about down the road. Don't worry about 10 steps later. You do the next right thing you need to do right now, and I'll take care of the consequences. Our job is to do the next right thing that God is asking us to do in the moment, right now. And when we do, he will continue to fight for us. He will continue to lead us and be on our side. And so I just want to ask you, who's the hero of your story? Because... If you're the hero of your story, you need a better hero. The hero of your story was never meant to be you, but God.
And when God is the hero of your story, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're dealing with, you're never outnumbered. I once heard somebody say that one plus God is always a majority. You plus God is always a majority. No matter what you're up against, no matter what wall is in front of you, no matter who's surrounding you, when God is with you, you're never outnumbered. And so, it's not about our abilities or inabilities. It's about his ability. We trust him, we follow him, because he's the hero of our story. And the same God who was with Gideon on the battlefield is with you watching online today and with all of you guys listening here at North Garnett today. He's with us. He's on our side. The question is, will you let him be the hero of your story? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today and this moment we've had to open up your word and study it. Father, I never want to be the hero of my own story. Because when I try to be the hero, everything falls apart. And if there's anybody out there who's trying to be the hero of their story, Father, may they realize that they need a better hero in you. Father, lead us, guide us. May we do the next right thing that you are asking us to do in the moment that we are in right now. Because even though it may not be what we want to do, we need to do what we need to do because it's what you're asking of us. Lead us, direct us, and guide us. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.